Our scripture reading tonight comes from Acts 2, verse 42, verse 46, and then we'll read Acts 20, verses 7 to 12. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and just a reminder uh, to bring your own Bibles, and then you can read and follow along the messages with us. So let's stand and and read God's Word. I'll read, and, and you will stand in acknowledgement of His Word. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. Paul went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said. He's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home, alive and well. And everyone was greatly relieved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you all. When Homer Simpson joined the Stonecutter's Lodge, he joined as number 908. And everyone else ahead of him outranked him. Let's watch. Coming through. Can't throw me out. My father's a member. I'm in. I'm in. Okay, okay, Homer, you're in. Just don't point that thing at me. Oh, thanks, Lenny. When am I going to be initiated? As soon as number one gets here. Number one? (laughs) Hello, my name is number one. (laughs) And so forth. We call each other by number, not by name. Carlos, number 14, I'm number 12. Burnsy's number 29. You outrank Mr. Burns here? Sure. Watch. 829, get out of here! Thank you, sir. May I have another? Patience, Monty. Climb the ladder. (laughs) When Homer joined the Stonecutters, he joined as number 908. Everyone outranked him. And this is the way it is in the Stonecutters. It was all by rank. All right? You heard about number one had the top rank, and Homer had the lowest rank. That's the way it was with the Stonecutters as Homer joined. He was outranked by everybody, and so everyone ahead of him could do whatever they wanted to him. We're in the middle of this series called We Are. I feel like in many ways 2020 has been this gigantic reset button on life, on society, and even on the church. And I've been sort of taking this opportunity to rebuild, as it were, in the middle of this 2020 reset. And so what I've been doing is I've been trying to run this thought experiment where I try to pretend that I know nothing about what the church is. And I've just been picking up my Bible and reading. And I've been asking myself as I've been reading, what is the church if I just look at what happens in Scripture? And so this series is answering the question, we are, we are dot, dot, dot. And and this week we say, we are people of the table. That's the conclusion we come to this week, is we are people at the table. Let's look at Acts 2.42, the start of our scripture today. This is our verse, the verse that we are named after, Grace 2.42, Acts 2.42. Here's what it says. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And then 2, verse 46. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Who are we? We are people of the table. And when we come to the table, we are joined to believers and we are joined to Jesus. Who are we? We are people of the table. And when we come to the table, we are joined to believers and we are joined to Jesus. Okay? We are joined to believers. Now, when I was a kid on Communion Sunday, they would pass around this tray with a bunch of holes in it, with a bunch of plastic individual cups in those holes. And so when the tray came, and this was very nerve-wracking for a klutzy young boy like myself, you have to hold the thing with one arm while you extract your plastic cup with the other arm. Then you would insert your individual plastic cup into a little cup holder in the pew in front of you, and then you would pass the tray without spilling to the person next to you. It's this individual little cup that you got. And then when the bread came by, you'd grab your stale piece of bread. And you'd wait until the pastor had you partake. And then when it came time for the bread, he'd say, you know, body of Christ broken for you. And you'd pop that stale thing in your, in your mouth and, you know, go like this. Um, and then it came time for the cup. So you'd extract your cup from the cup holder. And then you'd gulp that thing down in one gulp. And then you would listen to the sounds of hundreds of little plastic cups clicking as they were inserted into the cup holder. And then my mom would say, now listen for the coughs. And sure enough, for about the next minute, you'd hear, you know, and then someone else over here, and then someone over here, it was hilarious, on cue. I would have never noticed it unless my mom said, now listen for the coughs. And yeah, sure enough, for a whole minute, just coughing all around the room. It was this individualistic practice, and, and normally on a communion Sunday or when we would partake communion, our practice at Grace would be to have one loaf of bread and one cup, and you'd rip off the piece of bread, and, and then you'd dip it in the cup, and everyone would partake from that. Because when we come to the table, we are joined to believers. We are joined to the body of Christ when we come to the table. And I like that practice. I miss that practice. It pains me that we have to have this ridiculous, I mean, look at this thing, overproduced cup and wafer in one. Ugh. I, I really dislike this. I loved that our practice was one loaf, one cup. It was this great balance where we could share, but without having to really share. I mean, you're ex-Catholics here, right? Where they wipe the cup, and then it's clean after they wipe it. And then you drink, and they wipe it again. That's wild <laughs> and disgusting. <laughs> so I, I, like, I liked our practice, and it just, ooh, this, it's, it's like, ugh, grating. When we come to the table... We come joined to believers as one. After Morgan and I put the kids to bed, she, her job is to do the dishes, and my job is to clean up the toys, and oftentimes cleaning up the toys takes as long as doing the dishes. That's really disgusting, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> but so one of our, one, something Morgan likes to do is uh, turn Hamilton on on Disney+. Plus. Ever since this thing hit Disney+, Plus, you know, it makes for nice uh, background music as we're cleaning up. And um, one of my favorite songs from Hamilton begins like this. All right, all right, that's what I'm talking about. Now everyone give it up for the maid of honor, Angelica Schuyler. A toast to the groom. To the groom. To the groom. 
to the groom, to the bride, from your sister, always by your side, to your union, to the revolution, and the hope that you provide. Rewind. I remember that night. I just might remember that night for the rest of my days. Okay, anyway. All right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I just love that song. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anyway, but uh, it's a wedding toast, right? And this is uh, Alexander Hamilton's sister-in-law to be toasting as the maid of honor at their wedding. And I want you to think about the wedding toasts that you have been witness to. And usually the maid of honor gets up there or the best man gets up there, makes their toast. How dumb would that be if they did that to an empty room? How stupid would that be if nobody else was there? You can't toast by yourself. Toasting implies other people. And when we toast to the king, we toast as the joined body of believers. We toast as the body of Christ with other believers. You don't toast by yourself. And even if you are toasting the king by yourself, you're toasting with the king. And we are joined to other believers. A toast implies being joined to other believers. Who are we? We are people of the table. And when we come to the table, we are joined to other believers. Back to our narrative in Acts, uh, Acts 20. Paul is on his farewell tour. He's got some traveling companions with him. And he's coming to the believing church in Troas, and he's going to say his goodbyes there, and you can see where Troas is on the map. So he's coming with his traveling companions. Let's look at some of these companions that he's traveling with. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 20. Several men were traveling with Paul. They were Sopater, son of Phyrus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy, Antichicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. This is a hodgepodge group of traveling believers with Paul because Timothy is a mutt. He's got a Jewish dad, or sorry, Jewish mom and a Greek dad. He's a mix. Okay? Aristarchus is a Jew from Thessalonica. Trophimus is a Gentile from Ephesians. And Secundus is a Gentile from Corinth. So you have various ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, and mixture of Jew and Gentile, from all of these different hometowns. Right, traveling with Paul, and they come to the church at Troas, and what do they do? Verse 7, on the first day of the week, we gather with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. So this hodgepodge group of traveling companions with Paul comes to Troas, they take the Lord's Supper, and then 9, look who else is there. As Paul spoke out and on, a young man named Eutychus was there. So you have a hodgepodge group of traveling companions, mixed ethnicities, mixed hometowns, and then you have this young man at this Gentile church in Corinth. I'm sorry, Troas. When we come to the table, we are joined to believers. And when we come, our differences and our earthly divisions are transcended by the table that we come to. We are joined to believers no matter our ethnicity, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our hometowns, no matter our age, no matter our sex, no matter where we come from. Those divisions and differences are transcended because when we come to the table, we are joined as believers in Jesus. When Homer joined the stonecutters, it was all about rank. He was number 908. Number one swore him in as a new stonecutters member. Number one was the top, the leader of that chapter. 
And then Lenny and Carl, you saw, outrank even Mr. Burns, so they could just do whatever they wanted to him. In the stonecutters, it's all about rank. Not so when we come to the table. Those divisions are transcended. Craig Keener gives us a window into what banquets were like in Paul's day in the Roman Empire. Okay? Banquets in the Roman Empire in Paul's day were infused with this idea of status and privilege and rank. Here's what Craig Keener says. He says, ancient seating at banquets was arranged according to rank. And then he's going to mention the church at Corinth, this other church. The churches in Corinth met especially in well-to-do patrons' homes because the well-to-do patrons had large enough homes to be able to welcome people. In Greco-Roman society, patrons often seated members of their own high social class in the special triclinium, which was also the table that Jesus reclined at with his disciples at the Last Supper. The best patrons were seated at the triclinium in the best room. If more spaces were needed, others could be served in the larger atrium of the home. Guests further from the host received or brought inferior food and inferior wine. So even the layout of banquets in the Roman Empire reinforced this idea of who's important and who's not. The important people were the closest to the host and had the best stuff, and the less important people were farther away from the host and sometimes even had to bring their own stuff. And Craig mentions this church at Corinth that was having these same issues. The church at Corinth was allowing the Roman way of doing banquets to infiltrate their celebration at the table of the Lord's Supper. When we come to the table for Communion Sunday, and we'll do it later tonight, uh, we read 1 Corinthians 11 and we read 23 to 32. What I want to do is I want to read for you the verses leading up to that reading that we'll do later. Here's what's happening at the church in Corinth. Paul says, But in the following instructions I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meals without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. So at the church in Corinth, they're letting the Roman way of doing banquets infiltrate their celebration of the Lord's Supper because the rich people are saying, okay, everyone's coming at 5 o'clock. Why don't we show up at 4.30? Then we can get the best spots and the best food. And then when the poor show up later, they can get the leftovers and we don't have to worry about them in the best spots. That's what they're doing. They're having a little meeting before the meeting to get the best stuff and the best spots. Not so with the Lord's table, because when we come to the table, we are joined to believers. Who are we? We are people of the table, and when we come to the table, we are joined to believers no matter our status, no matter our privilege, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our hometowns, no matter our gender, no matter our age, no matter our skin tone. When we come to the table, we are joined to believers. I had a professor in seminary by the name of Scott McKnight, and he wrote a book called Fellowship of Difference, and, and he has several pages in that book where I love his description of house church worship in Rome. And I've cut his description that several pages down to about six paragraphs. But what I want you to do is just, this is a little story time, okay? So I just want you to relax. If you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. You may not fall asleep. 
Um, but just relax, and I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this fictitious Roman citizen attending house church in the Roman Empire. Okay, so settle in. Imagine going to church in the first century in a major Roman city such as Rome. You enter a house church where everyone gathers and you immediately encounter some church kids playing hide and seek. Someone's slave passes you carrying a spit with some already roasted meat dangling on the end. You walk through an atrium where the evening sun gently falls on you and then a few steps beyond the atrium you enter into a large room where others are sitting. Some lounge on the floor while others are on sofas with pillows. The elder, or what we call the pastor, has a small scroll open and he's chatting with someone about what it says. Outside the room on the veranda are low tables and some have already taken their seats for dinner. There you sit at table eating next to a Roman magistrate and a young Jewish man who not only follows Torah but believes in Jesus. Across the room you observe that a slave, instead of serving others, is sitting next to a Roman citizen. There are different statuses identified by their clothing, and they are praying together with hands clasped. The conversation is going wonderfully with others around you when someone, the elder, stands up and says a prayer to lead the group into the Eucharist. You hear about bread and body and about wine and blood, and then he passes bread and wine around the room. You snap off some bread, eat it, and then take a deep gulp of wine. You pass these to the magistrate next to you, and the table grows silent. Your thoughts wander to what has happened to you because of what happened to Jesus, dying so that you are now saved from a life of sin. You recall your own liberation as you sit with a few dozen liberated people. The elder speaks about the cup and announces it is God's love and grace and yes for everyone. He reports a sad story he heard about a church where some of the wealthier followers of Jesus were eating before the poorer ones arrived. The elder makes it clear that Roman ways stop at the door and that everyone, men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks and rich and poor are all one in the family of Christ. The elder says this Passover meal cup is a cup of thanksgiving and that by drinking from that cup, each person is participating in the death of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. He then says that eating the bread means you have just, par just partaken in the body Jesus gave for us, a body that made you all one. Whether you are Jewish or Roman, man or woman, a slave or a Roman citizen, which you are. That's worship in the Roman Empire. Who are we? We are people of the table, and when we come to the table, we are joined to believers. Paul said it like this. He sums it all up in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Who are we? We are people of the table, and when we come to the table, we are joined to believers, and we are joined to Jesus. Let's get back to our narrative in Acts 20, verse 7 to 12. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. Paul went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms. Don't worry, Paul said. He's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. When I was in high school, and Morgan had him too, I had Mr. C., 
which stood for Mr. Christofferson. DeMaster, you have Mr. C? I thought so. Yeah, you had Mr. C. So he was our history, civics, social studies teacher, okay? The penalty for falling asleep in Mr. C's class is he would grab a marker and he'd come over. Uh, my head gets cut off there. He'd uh, come, come over to the student who's sleeping and he'd grab his green marker and he would color their ear green. So the kid who fell asleep had to walk around school for the rest of the day with a green ear. <laughs> like, yeah, you fell asleep in C's class, huh? <laughs> Nowadays, that'd be like a lawsuit if a teacher tried to do something like that. But the green ear was the penalty for falling asleep in Mr. C's class. The penalty for falling asleep in Paul's class for Eutychus was way higher. Because Eutychus dies. He pays for his life. I mean, you can imagine this, right? Young man meaning between 8 and 14 years old. The Bible calling Eutychus a young man means he's between 8 and 14 years old. And what do teenagers do? They sit in the back. This has happened literally since the early church. So he sits in the back, makes himself comfortable in the window, and it, the room is packed with people, so it's warm, and the lights are candles, so that's adding heat. And you can imagine Paul droning on and on, and he gets tired. The eyelids get heavy. They drop shut. He falls asleep, falls out of the window, three stories, to his death. Yeah, I couldn't find any better illustrations than these Legos. Sorry. That's all I got. Doesn't seem like people want to make illustrations of Eutychus. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, he falls to his death. Paul goes down, and the Lord does a miracle and raises him from the dead. Paul says, he's alive. He's alive. Now, the first time I read this story or became aware of this story in the Bible, I thought it was hilarious. Like, that's, that's, that's funny. A teen falling asleep, you know, oh, dying and coming back to life as teens do, you know. No, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's kind of a funny story. But the question is, is why does Luke include this? It just seems so random, like non sequitur. He's going along Paul's farewell tour stopping at the church of Troas, and then this teenage boy falls asleep during the sermon and dies? Gets raised back to life? Why? I think one of the reasons why Luke includes this seemingly non-sequitorial story is because Eutychus is a picture of what happens to believers who are joined to Jesus. Eutychus goes from death to life. Believers go from death to life. Because God raised his son, Jesus, from death to life. There's a little mini narrative, a little mini pictorial of what we are celebrating when we come to the table. Luke's sequence is no accident. Look at this sequencing. 20 verse 9, Eutychus falls out the window and dies. 20 verse 10, God raises Eutychus back to life. 20 verse 11, they go upstairs they celebrate the Lord's Supper and they toast to the one who makes the journey from death to life possible. That is no accident on Luke's part. When we come to the table, we are joined to Jesus because he is the one who went from death to life and those that are in him go from death to life. And that is what we are toasting when we come to the table. Now, there is some contextual hints that I want you all to become aware of that Luke is giving us. When we read the Bible, it's one thing to read the words and see what's going on. 
But the authors are doing something even more than the face value words. And they are dropping us clues to what they want us to be cued into and what the type of imagery that they want us to be thinking of as they write. Look at this. 27b to 8. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. Three elements here. Three clues and hints that Luke is dropping for us. The teacher is leaving in the morning. And this is Paul's farewell tour, so he's not coming back. Teacher's leaving in the morning. You got a meal in an upstairs room late at night. What is the imagery that Luke is dropping for us here, that he's evoking? The Last Supper. At night, meal in an upstairs room where the teacher is leaving in the morning. That is what Luke is cluing us in to with this gathering of the believers at Troas. Many of you know that we are part of a denomination called a Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. Very straightforward, simple, easy to remember. Um, And we have this, actually it's a beautiful document uh, that we hold to. It's called the Eco-Essential Tenets. And it is a brief, concise statement of the basics of what we believe. And it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I would love it if you sometime go to eco-prez, eco-prez.org, and click on resources and get yourself the essential tenets. And it's only like five or six pages. Read that. It's a beautiful statement of what we believe. But here's what the tenets say about the Lord's table. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's supper are signs that are linked to the things signified, sealing us to the promises of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we confess that as we eat the bread and share one cup, the Spirit unites us to the ascended Christ so that his resurrection life may nourish, strengthen, and transform us. I want to zoom in on some language there. Specifically, I want to zoom in on this part. As we eat the bread and share one cup, the Holy Spirit unites us to the ascended Christ. Back to Acts 20, verse 8. The Greek word for upstairs room where the believers are meeting in Troas is this word hypero. It's kind of a rare word, only used four times in the entire Bible, all in Acts. The first time hypero is used is in chapter 1, right after Jesus has ascended to heaven. He sends the disciples back to Jerusalem. Okay, So Jesus has ascended, and here's what happens. Then the apostles return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, that's where Jesus ascended, a distance of half a mile. And then the very next verse, when they arrived to Jerusalem, they went to the hypero, the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Ascension of Christ, believers return to the hypero, and then what happens in chapter 2? They receive the Holy Spirit. Ascended Jesus, believers meeting together and receiving the whole essential tenets. As we eat the bread and share one cup, the Holy Spirit unites us to the ascended Jesus. We are joined to believers and we are joined to our ascended Lord Jesus. Who are we? We are people of the table. And when we come to the table, we are joined to believers and we are joined to Jesus. When I think about Eutychus as part of those believers in Troas, taking communion with them all, he's a young man. So this is between age 8 and 14, and he's taking communion with this hodgepodge group of believers, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and he's there partaking with them all. 
This begs the question, what about communion for our kids? Here at Grace 242, if we got Eutychus, 8 to 14-year-old, taking communion with those believers at Troas, what do we do about our kids? And many of you have asked that question. Thank you for asking that question, by the way. I am excited, along with the elders, to announce the launch of something that I'm calling CPR, or Communion Preparation Resource. Okay? So applying CPR is as easy as one, two, three. Okay? Sorry, this is so lame, but I love it. So I'm just torturing you all with the lame. As, yes, it's very lame. Okay? But we're so excited to launch this, elders and I, because we want you as parents to be applying this to your children. So if you believe, so let me just quickly give you an overview. This resource is live on the Facebook page now on the Grace242 Facebook page now. If you want this resource, I can email it to you. Just hit me up. All right, we can get it to you. Um, but simple three-step process. Number one, we want you as parents to be assessing whether or not your child is showing an interest in taking communion. Right? If they're older and still not showing interest, it's probably time for you to step in and maybe kind of fan those flames a little bit. Right? But if your kid is younger and they don't really care right now, probably best just to wait. Once you've assessed that your child is ready, you're going to have a conversation. This is step two with your child. There's, you're going to open your Bibles together and read some scripture. You're going to watch a video together. You're going to have a conversation, talk about what communion means, what their understanding of communion is. You can even pull up this message on YouTube channel afterwards and re-watch or listen to this message. Then, after you've had that conversation, we want step three is for a small group of church leaders, so elders and deacons or elder and a deacon or me or whatever, small group of church leaders, to meet with you and your child to corroborate your, your agreement that your child is ready for, to take communion. And if the elders indeed corroborate that, then your child can begin taking communion. And that's an awesome thing. I'm super excited about that. So that's what we're launching today. That's on the website. If you want it, talk to me. I can get that to you. But that's what we're going to do regarding our kids when it comes to partaking in the sacrament. When we come to the table, we are joined to believers and we are joined to Jesus. When we come to the table, we come in both seriousness and celebration. And our faith tradition, our Reformed Presbyterian tradition, has done a really good job at the former and I think is really lacking in the latter. When we come, we come in both seriousness and we come in celebration. We come in seriousness because we recognize as we come to this table that without Christ, there is no hope and we are destined for death, and life is meaningless. Without Jesus, there is no hope, there is only death, and this life is meaningless. That's a serious thing. And we come taking seriously the fact that our sins and our pockets of rebellion within us inhibit us from having the communion with Jesus that he wants us to have. It also inhibits us from being the people that God wants us to be, that he has sent his son for us to be, so we take this seriously, knowing Ephesians 2, 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. We know, coming to this table, that if it weren't for Jesus, we are hopeless and life is meaningless. I like to think about the Eutychus story. And you know, we can laugh at it. It's hilarious because he was raised to life. But if he had not been raised to life, that would be a tragedy in the Bible because it would be a life cut short. And I think about if he had stayed dead I think about that Troas church and those people that saw him in the window. And can you imagine those adults that saw Eutychus take a seat up in the window and didn't say anything about it? If he would have stayed dead, if I was one of those adults and I saw him in the window and he stayed dead, I would have been like, I, I should have told him. 
should have told him, get out of that window. Get out of there. Don't sit there. That's dangerous. Come stand with the rest of us. I should have told him. And the people that were in charge of the worship service that evening, they should have said, we should have shut Paul up. We should have cut him off because it got too late. People got too tired. He would have never fallen if we would have cut the service off. And then every time that Troas community would have taken communion together and come to the Lord's table, and if Eutychus was still dead, they would have remembered. They would have looked at that window and they would have said, oh, Eutychus. And it would have been this weight that the community carried for years on end. When we come to the table, we come in the seriousness knowing that without Jesus, we have no hope and we are dead in our sins. This is why Paul says in 11.28, we should examine ourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup and acknowledging these pockets of rebellion within us that inhibit us from communing with our Lord. We come in seriousness, but then we also come in celebration because of who our king is and what he has done. Can you imagine the joy? And joy seems like a cheapening word of it. The uproar that that Troas church would have had when Paul picked up Eutychus alive. He's alive. I imagine a cheer from people staring out the window. Imagine the sigh of relief on behalf of the community. And when they went upstairs and celebrated the Lord's Supper, can you imagine they would have... They would have pumped that cup with no regard for the liquid in it. Because it would have been, praise the Lord, praise our King who raises the dead. And the liquid would have sloshed all over the place. Because who cares? Because we just saw a miracle. Because we serve the Jesus who raises the dead. And he just did it with our guy Eutychus right now. Thank you, Jesus. The joy, the joy of that church, seeing what the Lord does through His Son with their own eyes. That's what we get to celebrate when we come to the table. Who are we? We are people of the table. And when we come to the table, we are joined to believers and we are joined to Jesus. And we have the opportunity to do that right now.